Luke chapter 18. We're going to be looking at the first 14 verses today. I like to pray. Never thought I was very good at it. I want to be better at it. I'm glad that I'm able to pray. I'm thankful that God has created this pathway for me to be able to communicate with Him. Well, here in Luke chapter number 18, Jesus gives us some instruction on prayer in these first 14 verses. Now, I'll remind us that there's lots of information about prayer all throughout Scripture, and this is by no means the end of it. This is just some more of it. Just get a little more information. You guys probably have a favorite recipe that you cook by. You, you do it this way and, and this temperature and these ingredients. And then somebody comes along and says, you know, it's kind of like Miss Edwards next door told Aunt B if your pickles had just a little more allspice. <laughs> well, maybe you tweak it just a little bit or maybe you add a little something to it. I like to think of these verses along that line. I believe we are praying people. I hope you are. I don't think we should overcomplicate prayer. I think it's us talking to God. He, he tells us, you, you should come boldly before my throne. You're, you're, you're one of the kids. You're welcome here. Now we come reverently and we, 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 we honor and we adore Him. But at the same time, don't we shouldn't let things keep us from that. But in that, Jesus gives us two things here specifically in regards to prayer. He talks this morning about persistence. And then about posture. Let's read from verse 1. And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint, saying, There was in a city a judge which feared God, neither regarded man. There was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes to heaven, but smote upon his breath, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner." I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for this time together. You've given us your word. We don't consider ourselves deserving, but here it is. Lord, we have committed ourselves to try to live by your word. So as we consider what's here in these verses this morning, help us to take the wisdom and to use it that you might be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus teaches persistence. He says we ought always to pray and not faint. And then Jesus teaches posture. And by that I don't mean, and some of you got real excited when I said the word posture this morning, you're real legalistic. 
You've got to pray a certain way. Every head bowed, every eye closed. You've got to cross your hands or whatever it is that you do when you pray. And that's all fine. You can do any of that you want to. Just remember, God sees the heart. When I talk about posture this morning, I want to address the spiritual things that Jesus goes to here. Mostly that he says we shouldn't trust in ourselves. So persistence, we ought always to pray and not faint. And posture, we shouldn't be praying trusting in ourselves. So let's begin considering persistence in these first eight verses. Verse 1, Jesus just makes the point that we should keep on praying until we hear from God. He spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, easy memory verse. Who knows what it says? It's in regards to prayer. It's only three words. Oh, y'all have been memorizing your Bibles. Good job. I'm proud of you. Maybe someday they'll call you on stage, give you a Reese's cup. You know me all too well. <laughs> of course, I did pop a button during uh, Sunday school this morning, so that's a thing. I thought to myself, in spite of me being in the pulpit with a button unbuttoned in my shirt, they still gave me a Reese's cup. And then I thought to myself, maybe they shouldn't be giving me a Reese's cup. I'm buttons popping open on my shirt during. The... Thank you. <laughs> that's a nice way of saying shut up and move on. <laughs> I'm just kidding, Miss Laura. Pray without ceasing. What is it that keeps us from praying without ceasing? Is it negligence? Sinfulness? Weakness? Is it indifference? I think in the American church, it's our independence at times. Is it lack of faith? Well, I've been praying a long time for this and don't think God's hearing me or He hasn't answered me or He hasn't done anything. I'm lacking faith. Maybe it's just rebellion in our hearts. We know we should pray something and pray about something, but we don't want to. But I think in this context, it's not all that sinister. We often just lose heart. Jesus knows and here He offers us encouragement. You keep on praying until you hear from God. Now, in verses 2 through 5, he teaches that through a story about a godless judge and a helpless widow. Now, let's repeat the story here. He says, there was in a city a judge which feared God, feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him saying, avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterwards, he said within himself, though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her lest by her continual coming she weary me. Now I want you to notice in Jesus' story that he tells here, the very sharp contrast between the characters. You have a judge. He's, he's a man. And then you have a widow who is a, a woman, which is, is much more distinct in their culture than it would be in our culture. A man could go to the law, but a woman could not go to the law without a male representative. Her husband, her father, or a paid lawyer. So there's a contrast Jesus is pointing out. Second, we notice that the judge is in a position of power while this widow is completely helpless. Third, we see Jesus point out here that this judge is in the wrong. He's unjust. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't regard man. And then we have this widow who's actually in the right. She's not coming saying, I may not be right, but I want you to work on my behalf to make me right in the court of law. She's saying, I'm right and I need the law to, to stand behind me on this. So very sharp contrasts 
in these pictures that Jesus paints for us through these characters. Now, the judge. Verse 6, Jesus himself calls him unjust. So in his own story here, the character that he presents, he clarifies in verse 6, the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge saith. So he's unjust. Second, notice in verse number 2, that it says that he fears not God, neither regards man. That's a pretty staunch thing to say about a person. I mean, you may know somebody that's kind of like that, but even if you were telling me, you would say, well, that's not exactly true. I mean, sometimes, you know, and you kind of let them off the hook there a little bit. But in verse four, the judge, he, he just admits it. He said to himself, I fear not God nor regard man. This is a bad guy and he knows it. And he doesn't seem to be bothered by this. He doesn't seem to be ashamed of it. He doesn't intend to change from this. This is just the man's character. He doesn't fear God. He, he doesn't fear man. He's aware of it. He's ungracious. He's unloving. He's unmerciful. He's ungodly. The only thing that ever gets this guy to do what we would call right is when it's in his own self-interest. He'll do the right thing when it benefits him. Other than that, he's just going to do what benefits him whether you think it's the right thing or not. So there's the judge. And then there's the widow. Verse 3, this widow was desperate. There was a widow in that city and she came unto him saying, avenge me of mine adversary. Two big words there that you don't often use except in dire straits. Avenge. Now that's the English word, but we would understand what she means there. I, I need you to take action. I need you to advocate. I need you to do something here. Avenge me. And then adversary. It's the last time you called someone your adversary. It was the last time you called someone an enemy. This was a serious situation and she's desperate. Avenge me of mine adversary. Her only recourse though, because he would not for a while, verse four tells us, was persistence. She didn't have counsel. It was common in those days, even if you didn't have counsel, to just bribe the judge. That was pretty normal. Or with counsel, you would bribe the judge. They were unjust. Well, if she didn't have money to buy a lawyer, she also didn't have money to bribe the judge. So she's truly desperate. What is she going to do? She says, well, I'm going to be outside of his office when he leaves every day. I'm going to be outside his home when he gets down with his breakfast in the morning. I'm going to be outside the barbershop when he leaves the barbershop. And every time I see him, I'm going to say, Judge, avenge me of my adversary. When he sits down to eat his dinner, I'm going to look through his dining room window and I'm going to say, Judge, avenge me of my adversary. When he is trying to go to play golf, I'm going to be standing out across the fence there at the golf links and I'm going to say, Hey, Judge, it's me. Avenge me of my adversary. My plan was to just keep going with that till y'all got sick of it. So you got the point of persistence, but can I just say it and we can move on? Stomach's growling. I want that Reese's cup real bad. <laughs> I think she must have been relentless, though. I don't know exactly how she went of this. Jesus doesn't elaborate. He just says that the judge got to the point that he said, if I don't do something about this, she's going to drive me crazy. Though I fear not God, nor regard man, verse 5, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. She won't leave me alone till I do something. Kids, this is not a biblical way to act toward your parents. 
Amen, parents? It works sometimes, but it shouldn't work. Parents on Wednesday nights, six, in the kitchen, we're working on how to do better at this and hold our ground and all of that. Well, from here, Jesus drives home his point by comparing righteous God to this unjust judge. Now, often we would miscompare or hear it even preached in a poor comparison here that we're like the widow and God is like the judge. And if we'll just be persistent, God will hear us. The big problem there. What's the problem? Anybody? The judge is characterized as what? Unjust. But what is God? It's just. That's not Jesus' point. His point's better than that, actually. And that's, that's kind of what I like about how Jesus goes at it. He said, and shall not God. So he does put him up against the judge. But he doesn't put him up as he's like this. And if you'll do this, he'll react this way to you. He says, no, he's not like this at all. He's better. He's more. He's greater. Shall not God avenge his own elect? And he doesn't even put us up against the, the widow, desolate and desperate. He says, no, you're his loved and chosen ones. If an unjust judge can take care of a desperate widow, though she has nothing to offer him in exchange, and though it does him no benefit to take care of her, he just got sick of dealing with her. What about a loving and caring, truthful and honest and righteous God who has chosen us unto himself? How much more would he take care of you? That's a great comfort. So it, it almost takes away from the whole pray persistently as if, if we'll work hard enough at it, God will answer our prayers. And it just brings into this new measure of why wouldn't you just keep on praying? Because he is your loving, caring God who has elected you and he wants to hear from you and he'll work on your behalf for you. Praise the Lord. In fact, in verse number eight, Jesus says he will avenge speedily. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. He will bring about justice Quickly, pray with persistence and your loving Heavenly Father will hear and He will act. I think we should let the contrast here between God and the unjust judge be an, be an encouragement to our praying. God is just. He's fair in all of His decisions. He's righteous in all of His ways. God is wise. He works in our lives at exactly the right time. God is loving. He knows us by name and he has promised to save us. I don't think it's a mistake that Jesus uses the label here of elect. In verse number seven, shall not God avenge his own elect? He could have said avenge you. He, was, he had some disciples there, some followers. He could have said, well, not quite in the biblical timeline yet, but, but, but in our day he could have said the church. Shall not God avenge the church? could have said his people, but he brings in this word meaningfully, not meaninglessly, to illustrate just how deep the Father's love is for us. God has loved us in Christ before the world was ever even formed. Ephesians chapter number one, verses three, four, and five. We read these earlier in our Bible study. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Or 1 John 4, 19. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Hope that'll be a help to you the next time you pray. He loves you. He knows you. He already has arranged for your salvation. Is there a more confident basis on which we can pray? The end of verse number eight, Jesus does answer the question, how long must I persist in my praying? So persist in your praying. Verse one, he begins this with saying, men ought always to pray and to not faint, but how long must I persist in my praying? Well, nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Persist until the Lord returns. Just keep on praying. J.C. Ryle wrote this. He says, let us resolve to pray on steadily, patiently, perseveringly. And let us never doubt that it does us good. However long the answer may be in coming, still let us pray on. Whatever sacrifice and self-denial it may cost us, still let us pray on. So we see the persistence as Jesus' instruction in prayer. And then we see our posture. Here Jesus in verse number 9 corrects those who pray ritually while actually trusting in themselves. He spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. They don't pray as though they need mercy, which brings a different approach to praying with persistence. Should we be praying with the wrong posture in pride instead of humility? The persistence would not perform the desired outcome. When I was in high school, I made the varsity basketball team and wanted to do my best. And so I would practice at home in the driveway a lot, all the time, every free moment that I got. When I get to practice, the coach would say, all right, shoot 100 free throws. And we'd shoot. And how many did you make? You know, I was never at the tops. They didn't want me for that, by the way. I was bigger than everybody else. They just sit standing under the goal and put your hands up. That's what they wanted me for. But I wanted to be wanted for more than that. And I went to the coach and said, Coach, every day I go home after practice, I shoot 100 free throws. I get up in the morning, I shoot 100 free throws. On Saturday, multiple times during the day, I shoot 100 free throws. You don't know what a free throw is. Just The point of this little story is I was doing something the wrong way. And the coach says to me, uh, let me see you shoot one. I did it. And he said, well, you, you need to have your elbow in. You need to point that at the back of the rim. You need to have your feet squared up. You know, he went through all of this stuff with me. And he said, so you've been practicing and they say practice makes perfect, but I want you to know that only perfect practice makes perfect. You keep practicing poorly, you're just going to get better at being poor. And I was getting really good at doing it the wrong way. This is Jesus' point here. Our posture in relation to God and others is very important and it does touch our prayer lives. Verse number 10, he begins this parable about two men who went to the temple to pray. 
Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. Now, again, Jesus is going to make these two characters as sharply contrasting as possible. So we have a Pharisee, a religious leader, one who knew the scriptures. And then you have a publican, which is just a Roman tax collector. Now, this might not have been a Roman. In fact, it would have been a Jewish person that they uh, recruited to, to collect taxes for Rome who was occupying their land in that day. But in our day, we would understand this as like a world-renowned theologian and then maybe a gangster because the publicans were very, very much frowned upon. Kent Hughes writes about publicans, and he says, in today's culture, the closest social equivalent would be drug pushers and traffickers, those who prey on society, who make money off others' bodies and make a living of stealing from others. I'll point that out just to make, make clear to you how negatively seen this publican would have been. Not a churchgoer. I think it's unique in that he's just going up to the temple to pray at all. We're going to see some things here about where he went and how he stood and all of that. But the opposite of that would be this Pharisee. You know, cream rises to the top. There's the Pharisee, right? As far as religion was concerned, top guy. The historian Josephus described the Pharisees as a certain sect of the Jews that appear more righteous than others and seem to interpret the laws more accurately. So we have the publican, the tax collector, and we have the Pharisees. Those with the best reputation and then those with the worst. And both of these are going to the temple to pray in Jesus' story. Now, verse 11 and 12, we're told how the Pharisee prayed. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week, and I give tithes of all that I possess. This Pharisee, his prayer does begin with a thanksgiving, God, I thank thee. But boy, is. Thanksgiving is nothing more than a back-end brag. His posture is filled with pride in his own self-worth. He's thankful, but he's not thankful to God or for God or in his relationship. He just says, God, I thank you that I'm not like the publican. It could be his own way of saying, maybe he would have been one of those that writes a note and hands it to somebody at church. You know, there are other churches you could go to. We're a little more, I don't know, reverent around here. Thanks. Don't put thanks at the end of a note if you really don't mean it, by the way. This Pharisee was a down-the-nose looker. Even in his praying. He's talking to God. Now, the method of praying in that day was not like they didn't bow to pray. They, they lifted their head up to heaven and prayed. And he's in the public gathering for praying, so he's praying audibly. And in this audible prayer, he makes mention of the guy who he finally just showed up. He's a wicked, abusing, trafficking publican. He's not a good guy. And there he is. The Pharisee has the gall to say, God, well, I'm so glad I'm not like him. 
Christian, I would remind you this morning, you're one bad decision for being just like them. Maybe you've already even made the bad decision and the seeds you sown just haven't come up yet, but you do reap what you sow. Posture is awfully important. Then he makes his case for self-righteousness to God. He doesn't even say, just leave it at thank you, I'm not like this guy. He, he says, because this is what I'm like. He says, I fast. Now, in their day, in this custom, there were only a few times in the year that they were, that they were supposed to fast or they had like planned fasting. So what is he doing here? He's saying to the publican and everybody else under the sound of his voice, I am more righteous than all of you. How often does he say he fasts here in the text? Twice a week. Man. I got to tell you, I'm glad I'm not that holy. I just offended some of you, did I? Sorry. I really like to eat. If you want to pray for me, that's a good thing. Look, it's helpful. If you agreed with me, send apple pies. What's this guy doing? He's measuring himself up against others and not up against God. He's saying, boy, I'm definitely better than that guy. I'm better than this guy. Lord, look at me. What a, what a great attribute I am to your kingdom. He says, I tithe. And, it, and it's not that, he just says that he tithes. Like, I, I'm not telling you here, don't ever have conversations with people about your fasting. I think there's not enough fasting going on in the, the current church. I think we should fast more often. I think some of you should be communicating with other people about how fasting works and how it's worked in your life and how it'd be helpful in their life. There are some things Jesus said that don't come without prayer and fasting. Amen. But I appreciate that I don't have to come down to the worship gathering and every time here you stand up and talk about how much you've been fasting. And for sure we'd be the same way with the tithe. The offering, the giving, whatever words you want to put to it, it is you giving out of your abundance back to God. And you do that through the vessel of the church. This, all of what we do here it, it, it operates because of that. But this guy just takes it to one of those awkward and uncomfortable levels. Now, I don't mean in the amount that he gives. What I mean in is the amount that he brags. He says, I tithe of all that I possess in verse 12. I fast twice in the week and I give tithes of all that I possess. Now, in their custom, same as the fasting, they only had to tithe off certain things. They, and, and it was very, if you can imagine, in the religious, religious legal system of the Old Covenant, it was very legalistic about what you did tithe off, what you didn't tithe off, and all these things. They had all these rules laid out. Like down to the point of like, you, you tithe off these herbs that you grow and you don't off those herbs. Like these are good ones and these are bad ones. So you wouldn't dare give God a portion of any income you make off those herbs. Well, this guy, he says, I'm better than that. I tithe off all I possess. My wife and I have these discussions. Should you tithe off the gross or the net? I'll let you decide who's on which side of that thing. You know the answer, but I'm ashamed to admit it. Aren't we often like the Pharisee? 
Maybe not in our praying, but for sure in our living. Here's this guy. He's, he's not at home in his prayer closet. He's not trying to like work out some things with the Lord. Like if you want to get at home by yourself and talk to God and say, God, you know, I've been fasting twice a week. Maybe I need to fast three. I, I don't know. Help me. If you want to say, Lord, I've been going above and beyond on the tithe. I've been just, just trying to tithe of all I possess. That's one thing. But this is a guy in the public gathering before everybody. He's bowed his chest out, his, his face up toward the heavens. and He's just really telling God what a great guy he is. I fast. I tithe. What does that look like for you and I? Well, God, here's the things I keep myself from. And here are the things that I give of myself. I'm sure to always do this, and I never do that. I think we all have our own little version of that, don't we? I, I do this, and I don't do that to please God. Phil Riken notes here, if we take the Pharisee at his word, he was a man with few obvious vices and many commendable virtues. Wasn't well, that what you want your reputation to be? He has few obvious vices and many commendable virtues. But I wonder as we read his prayer here, was he praying or was he testifying? Was he praying or was he simply congratulating himself? In verse number 13, we're told how the publican prayed. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes to heaven but smote upon his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now notice this man, he stood afar off. The Pharisee would have walked into the the closest allowable place that he could go outside of where only the priest could go and offered his prayer. The publican, he dare not go that close to God. He didn't feel like he should and could or deserved it. He recognized his sinfulness just in his position. He just kind of, I'm separate from God. The publican, he didn't lift his eyes up to heaven, but in humility, he he kept them to the floor. He bowed his eyes down because who was he to look up toward God? And then in penitence, he beats his chest to say, I'm, boy, God, I've really made a mess out of my life. And he barely speaks at all. It is a, it's not a wordy prayer. I want to say it's not a theological prayer, but honestly, it's some of the best theology in all the scriptures. He just simply asks God, will you show a sinner like me some mercy? The Pharisee, he measured himself against the publican or other sinners the publican measured himself against a holy God. Well, in the end, you've got to decide, who am I trying to measure up to? I mean, just get down to the basics here. Brass tacks. How do you want it to come out in eternity? Do you just want to be above the, get the group here? Or do you want God to say, welcome? Well, if you expect God to say, welcome, then you better measure yourself up against God, not up against the group. 
These are some fine folks. It's a hard task. But in the end, we'll, we'll only get you this far. When this publican said, be merciful, I, I want you to know the depth of his meaning from the Greek term that he used. We in the English would translate it to be merciful to me, a sinner. So he's addressing God. He's addressing his own sin. And his request up against, up against his sin to God is this, this phrase, be merciful. It is a Greek term. It's H-I-L-A-S-K-O-M-A-I. Who can pronounce that? Me either. Halaskamai, something along those lines. I just pointed out to simply be able to define that word for you. Because when we think of being merciful, I often think we take the human concept of mercy and we mistake the theological concept of mercy. This Greek term, halaskamai, means to propitiate and expiate. Now, those are other two big words I've got. To, I can't spell them. Don't ask me to. To expiate is to cover sin. To propitiate is to turn away God's wrath by atonement. We sang that. Rock of Ages cleft for me. Be of sin a double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. When this guy stood there with his head bowed and beating on his chest, what he was saying was, God, please be merciful to me. Please turn God's wrath away from me because of my wicked deeds. Please cover my sin. Now this was a man who knew nothing of the cross as far as we know, but he was a part of an old covenant sacrificial system down at the temple where he went to pray. These folks involved in this, they would have pled with God to impute their sin to a sacrificial animal. In fact, the priest would have had them bring their animal and place their hands upon the head of the animal making this association that the things they had done that they could not atone for themselves would now be transferred. What is that word theologically? Imputation. They would be imputed to the animal. The priest would spill the animal's blood because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And then the, the imperfection of the animal would then be imputed to the sinner because the, the animal died. Now, this guy doesn't do all of that, but he said the right words. Now don't take that too far. You can't say just the right words to please God. Jesus did that, and those words were, Tetelestai. It is finished. But when they would take and put their hands down upon this animal's head and the animal would be killed, their sin was covered. Expiation. When they would go through this process, then God's wrath would be satisfied for them for a time until they sinned again, right? Propitiation. So this is what the publican was praying for when he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He was asking God to make atonement for his sin. That's what the term refers to that he used there. The tax collector was asking God, atone for my sins, cover my guilt, protect me from you. Protect me from your eternal judgment, your wrath. The order of his petition is telling. He first comes to God who is perfect in his holiness. He last comes to himself who deserves to die for these sins that he's committed. And in between them, 
He says, be merciful. Between holy God and sinful man is only that. Mercy. Propitiation. Expiation. The blood of the expiating propitiating sacrifice that takes away the sinner's guilt and it turns away the wrath of God. This is a wonderful picture of what Jesus was getting ready to accomplish on the cross. Do you not think Jesus is pointing this out through this story? Surely He is. The old covenant system was a temporary solution. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. In his daily diary, we, we read from John Newton, the, the writer of Amazing Grace. And as he summed up one day of his journal entry, he wrote this. He said, but now I may, comma, I must, comma, I do mention the atonement. I have sinned, but Christ has died. Aren't you glad? I have sinned, but Christ has died. From this then, in verse number 14, Jesus gives His instruction on the posture of our prayers. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. So the publican leaves justified, and the Pharisee doesn't. He thought he was, but he wasn't. Now when we say justified, Jesus says this here, this man went down to his house justified. Which man? The one who says, be merciful. It means to be justified means to be counted righteous. Jesus says this man went home counted as one of the righteous. Justification is the legal declaration that an unrighteous sinner has been made right with God. Thank God for justification. The Pharisee instead, what what would he be? He would be humbled. So that's Jesus' instruction on prayer. Pray persistently. But do so with a proper posture. Because otherwise you're being persistent in the wrong. Instead, be persistent in the right. Let's stand and pray.